they all just flushed it down the toilet. So it, it there's the tulip cycle, you know, from the 1600s and the tulip craze, like there's always something. Mm-hmm. And that's what the purist where, you know, Charlie Munger and, and Buffett, like they just stay in their lane. They don't get caught up in those crazes. They don't mm-hmm. understand the Bitcoin world. And, and, and I understand why they wouldn't. And so they, they choose to stay away. You, everybody can make somewhere else. Every, there's always a place to make money. The following is a conversation with Bruce Weinstein. Bruce Weinstein is a former financial advisor and was in the top 1% of income earners in America. But unfortunately, in 2016, due to some bad luck, lost it all. However, he used this setback to start his comeback and started Weinstein Wealth Insurance Solutions to help people find the best insurance coverages for themselves and their families. Here's his story. Bruce, it is my absolute pleasure to be speaking with you, my man. Uh, one, you know, legendary guy in the financial planning space. And two, you also happen to be a Florida resident. And I don't know which one of those uh, I should be more impressed by. <laughs> well, Florida was a little bit easier <laughs> to make yeah. it happen. Awesome to hear. But, uh, you know, you've had a really interesting and diverse career and a lot of really fun stuff to get into. But just to start out, can you take me back to the beginning? Did you always know you wanted to be a financial advisor? And kind of when you found that out, you know, how did you pursue that career path? So I went to school in in Western Pennsylvania, uh, IUP, Indiana University of Pennsylvania. So you, uh, you're from Philly, so you probably mm-hmm. heard of the school. And I, I went out there for computer science back in the early 80s. And I got a minor in finance and always had an interest in the finance side of things. And you know, got some early stock market uh, type courses in, in the minor. But no, my first job was really in the computer area and I hated it. I was miserable. I, I think I found I had too much personality to talk to a computer all day, <laughs> ne- needed human beings. And I had a stockbroker. I had this guy at Payne Weber. And you got to remember, this is before, certainly well before cell phones, but but even computers with a lot of the technology. So I was manually charting stock patterns and I was picking stocks and I would call this guy at Payne Weber and he would constantly talk me out of my own picks and give me his give me his garbage picks, charging me all these commissions. And his deals kept losing money and mine were making money, but I wasn't in them. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, this guy sucks. So I started to look into well what does a stockbroker do? And maybe that's something I want to do. And as fate would have it, there's a story of you know how I got involved with Merrill Lynch and mm-hmm. uh, the process they do for hiring. But once I did the Merrill Lynch simulation, which is part of their interviewing process, I'm like, oh, this is for me. And <laughs> I just kind of knew like this was people walked out of that thing. I mean, I, I could go into how it what it's all about, but it's a few hours you play stockbroker <laughs> in in, a, in an office in New York City, and people got up in for like five ten minutes and left. And I'm like, this is awesome. So yeah, yeah, I uh, just grab it as a fish to water at that point. Yeah, for sure. It's definitely a, a love it or hate it kind of vibe. It's interesting to see that you were more of a love it kind of vibe. But just to clarify, would you say working at Merrill Lynch, you're doing more wealth management or working more brokerage? Back then, it wasn't wealth management as much as brokerage being a stockbroker. Eventually, yeah. the industry, I got hired in September of 86. And we were cold calling cowboys. We were just stock jockeys. That, that, that's what it was. And one of the reasons I left Merrill was I had a manager who was challenging me on why I wasn't selling certain things. And he would say, well, how come you're not putting your, you know, Daniel into this? And I said, well, I don't think that's appropriate for Daniel in his situation. 
And his response was, I don't pay you to think, I pay you to sell. And I said, see you later. And pretty much, you know, 25 years of age, I was done working for Merrill Lynch. And it took a long time to the industry into the 90s, mid mid to late 90s is when financial planning Mm -hmm. became more in vogue. And then the early 2000s, fee-based, getting away from transactions and commissions became the the way to go. And then that last 20 plus years, that's where most people, you know, do their, their work is in the fee environment. You know, the, um, what's his name? Ken Fisher and the like, you know, we make money when you, we make more when you make more. Right. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's fee based. For sure. Always, I hear that Fisher investments commercial on TV. So I don't know who Ken Fisher is, but lovely to see that when there's an ethical dilemma, there seems to be good innovation for the world. But on that note, just out of curiosity, say, for example, your managers back then, did what kind of investment criteria were they looking at when giving you guys what companies to sell? Or was it more just, you know, let's pick the hottest names out on the market right now? Well, I mean, this could be a little controversial, but we they, love controversy. They, uh, <laughs> you know, they pushed what they wanted to unload. I definitely got caught with the unloading of garbage from the institutional side mm-hmm. to the retail side. And eventually the regulators forced, again, back in that era, Merrill Lynch had their own mutual funds, they had their own institutional clients, and they had retail clients. And now when you see BlackRock, which is a spinoff, that's the asset management that was Malaya. Merrill Lynch Asset Management became, as a spinoff, BlackRock. And so they had to give up the assets under management. We were paid a bonus commission to sell Merrill Lynch mutual funds over somebody else's like Putnam or Eaton Vance or whoever. There was always a little extra vig in it because they double dipped, right? They got the fees and they got the commissions. They got the assets under management. And in part of that came the conflict of interest where when the institutional side was looking to dump something, well, who are they going to give it to? Instead of taking it to the street, and getting mm-hmm. bloodied, they just announced some sales contest and we're going to, you know, promote X, Y, Z. And if you sell that, we'll give you a little extra bump. And then you sprinkle, you know, a couple hundred shares in each of your clients' accounts of that stock uh, at the so-called contest. And uh, and then a couple months later, it, it as it, can I curse? You know, it shits the bed. Yeah, yeah, yeah you're good. You I've know, had, had Brad, I, no, I don't know why I just said Brad, Bruce, uh, you know, people have said much worse. So if you, if you have to drop a <laughs> word or French word here and there, feel free to do your thing. This well, is your Thank you, Daniel. You know, there's a term when you wake up and you find out the stock shit the bed, right? Mm-hmm. There's a bad earnings uh, surprise, a negative earnings surprise. You wake up and your stock's shitting the bed. Like you're down 20, 30, 50% or even worse, right? Well, what are you going to do at that point? It's already shit the bed, like the bed's dirty. So you'd find that this conflict was a way for the institutionals to unload onto retail. Mm-hmm. And so instead of them taking the bad beat, let your clients take a couple hundred shares and, and eat it. And so again, there's there's issues that I was constantly having issues with in, in that regard back in that era. And eventually, 10 plus years later, it got cleaned up where a lot of that conflict was eventually removed. But, you know, I was, it wasn't, I was a whistleblower, but I was like, I don't want to be part of that. And that's, you know, where I, <laughs> but it, it didn't change. It wasn't just them. It was everybody. There was always this like I'm very big on the technicals when it comes to stocks and looking at patterns. And, you know, when, when a stock's at its 52 week low 
and and the brokerage firm is now finally issuing a sell. Mm -hmm. Like, really? Where where have you been? How come you didn't give me a sell when it was at a 52-week high? Oh, mm -hmm. by the way, that's when they issue their buy recommendations, right? So you know, Prudential was horrible for that. Like, you mm -hmm. could predict exactly the reverse of what a stock, just do the opposite of what they did. When they were putting a sell recommendation, it was time to buy. When they were putting a buy recommendation, it was time to sell. They were notorious for it. And it's like, okay, you know, like, now I know what to go buy my clients. It's like they're recommending selling Pfizer now when it fell from 100 to 30. Now 30, they suddenly don't like it. I've, you know, got, episodes, I've got episodes on my podcast of what Wall Street doesn't want you to know. And this is some of the stuff that I talk about. So, yeah, it was it was just just the way it was done. And I would say on some levels may still go on in certain aspects of things. I have my opinions on the whole Bitcoin craze and what happened a couple of years ago when you couldn't get access. And all of a sudden, when you finally got access, what happened? And it's, you know, it's artificial <laughs> behavior. I think Charlie Munger said that he, you know, rest his soul. He said that uh, he, you know, while the world changes, human behavior doesn't change. And I think mm -hmm. that definitely transcends or relates to one of the things that you just said. And for those that don't know, way back when there was probably, well, not to, not to age you, Bruce, you look great, but probably when you were working at Merrill Lynch, there was probably a little less regulation in the industry, which allowed for, I'll just say more shenanigans, but it's interesting, no, 100%. To, it's interesting to hear about what you said in the sense that, you know, back then there was a bit of a conflict of interest because your service level is supposed to be servicing your clients. But in reality, the bank just wants to offload all the bad things on their balance sheet. Sure. Uh, and, you know, I definitely understand how that took yeah, your path. It was yep. always about fee generation. You know, they were very big. You know, Merrill Lynch in the day was very big in underwriting, bringing new issues to market, whether it's a stock or municipal bond, corporate bonds. And and limited partnerships were the rage back then from the the, the way to create tax losses and do, you know, again, the rules were different then. And a lot of that stuff eventually got eliminated where you couldn't use those vehicles. And all those limited partnerships blew up. Mm -hmm. You know, the interest rates went up, uh, housing market, you know, in the eighties, you know, rolled over a little bit. Uh, so real estate in general took a hit for a, a period of time. And, and these limited partnerships were based upon certain real estate ventures and they, they all imploded because they lost the tax favorability that they were created for because the IRS closed that loophole. Mm -hmm. Oh, what about the people put their tens of millions of dollars in those things? They all just flushed it down the toilet. So it, it, there's the tulip cycle, you know, from the 1600s and the tulip craze, like there's always something. Mm -hmm. And that's what the purist where, you know, Charlie Munger and, and Buffett, like they just stay in their lane. They don't get caught up in those crazes. They don't mm -hmm. understand the Bitcoin world. And, and, and I understand why they wouldn't. And so they, they choose to stay away. You, everybody can make somewhere else. Every, there's always a place to make money. Mm -hmm. The question and challenge always is, when is it best to get out? I say it's easy getting in, it's hard getting out. So if you were an early investor and had access to Bitcoin at $100, at 60000 should you really be buying more or should you be thinking about getting out if you paid 100 Well, yep. the guy who paid 55000 he's not looking to get out at 60000 He's looking to buy more for whatever reason. So it's, it's that greater fool theory. It's musical chairs. When the music stops, who's going to be the last sucker in the room? Well- what happened, and again, it's about two plus years ago, I still have it on my phone, is I got an alert from CNBC's app that Goldman's, Goldman Sachs was finally, finally uh, creating uh, an entree for the retail client 
to get into Bitcoin. Oh boy. Now, at this point, Bitcoin was like 58,000. And I'd had clients over the years when it was 10 and 20 and 30 and 40. And, you know, how do I get in and how do I get some? And I'm like, I don't know. I have no idea how you get access to it. The brokerage firms were offer it. You know, you had to have the secret handshake and a code and a door somewhere that nobody knew about. Mm-hmm. And the prices just kept going up and created this demand. Well, suddenly at 58,000, oh, now how much you want, Daniel? How much you want? Mm-hmm. And so I took that screenshot. I posted on my Facebook. You can go look at it. It's timestamped. I said, I'm not the smartest guy in the room, but I'm calling the top on Bitcoin. Right here, right now, I'm calling the top. Because the, the fact that the retail investor is now being given access to something that was not given to them, all that means is the big boys are ready to dump it and they need the sucker to sell it to because they're not selling it to each other because they don't, I'm not going to pay 58,000. You know, we are, we're all in it at a hundred or $5, whatever it is. So we need the next sucker. Mm-hmm. And so the sucker is the retail who we haven't allowed in the game. And now they're coming in the game. And so when you want it, you, you probably shouldn't, when you can finally get it, you probably don't want it, shouldn't want it anymore. And so I don't know where it is today. I think it's back in the forties, but from that point forward, it probably hit around the low 60s. So I was probably within 5 or 8% of its high. And that's why you had the last blow off. Mm-hmm. And then it went under 20,000. Pretty much straight precipitously down, you know, with some bounces along the way. And you can maybe think there's technicals or whatever involved with it. But again, it, there's no earnings. It's, it's, it's a fabricated thing. So again, I'm not, pe- plenty of people made money and plenty of people got their asses kicked. And so again, you have to be careful in that regard. And, you know, now it's making its way back and people still say there's going to be some long-term permanent use to it. I'm not a student. I don't know enough about it, but, you know, I'm trying to understand blockchain and all this type of stuff. But if you're a speculative investor, there's always something out there for you. So you just getting in is easy. Getting out is hard, right? For sure. One could argue that the harder part of investing isn't really kind of the financial analysis, the valuation, the accounting, the fundamentals, but really you're controlling your emotions, which, you know, oh. we're all emotional beings. We all make mistakes, uh, but sure. hopefully we can try to stay the course. And on the other note, you know, I'm not a financial advisor like you, but if anyone's made 600x on pretty much any investment, it might be a good idea to think about pulling out because you know, take a profit. It, it anybody should have a systematic approach to what they're doing, and it's not a matter of like, look, nobody's gone bad being an apple. Mm-hmm. But if you bought Apple 15, 20 years ago before it really exploded with 35 stock split equivalents, mm-hmm. how large of a position is that in your portfolio? And and what else should you be doing? So if you look at the history of, of the Bill Gates out there and all the money he's got in Microsoft, over time, he started to sell pieces and diversify and build up other components to his portfolio. Now, would he have made way more money if he had just stuck with Microsoft all those years? Maybe, maybe not. But the risk is too great to not diversify. So I tell people I'm pruning the tree. I'm not cutting the tree down. I didn't say get out of all of your Apple, but sell a piece. Mm-hmm. You know, what's this thing called Google? What's this thing called Facebook? What's this thing called Tesla, Netflix? You know, maybe Pfizer on it. On a, but that's what diversification is. And that's why most people use professionals to help. And most people, frankly, don't belong buying individual stocks. They should be with funds or fund managers of some kind to have proper diversification and protection. But, you know, it, it's 
it's hard to know with perfection. I, I tell this, I used to do retirement planning seminars for many years. And I tell the story, one of my father's first stock investments was, I think it was uh, American Motor Corporation, AMC. It was GMC and Ford and AMC. Yep. They're long gone. And he's proud to tell you, he put, he bought $2. He bought a share for $2 and he eventually sold it for $4. He doubled his money. But what it doesn't tell you is it went to 100 mm -hmm. and he never got out. And all the way back down to four, eventually he sold it at four. So on paper, he doubled his money. In reality, the, reality, the reality was he had 50 times his money and oink, oink, never, never took it. Didn't know when to get out. Didn't have a discipline or a strategy. Or maybe sell some at 60, sell some at 80, sell some at 100, right? No. And so that's what people just don't understand. And then you mentioned the emotion is I tell people, you don't pay me to get you in. You pay me to keep you in. Mm-hmm. You think about that. You pay me to keep you in. Yep, for sure. Very deep there. And on a note to something you said before, actually, there was uh, something I read about Wall Street recently. Uh, so, you know, I'm no expert, but I have a pretty good understanding of, you know, the fundamentals of valuation, all that fun stuff. Uh, but whenever you have a lot of talking heads, I think my, I might have read this in a Peter Lynch book, actually, and that name definitely rings a bell for sure. But I think he said that whenever Wall Street is all recommending one thing, you know, take it and take a uh, a position in the opposite because usually the the opposite yeah. happens but yeah don't like don't that. follow don't follow the herd be a contrarian and again that's you know again you go back to the warren buffett is mm -hmm. how does he behave and how did he make his money the most mm -hmm. is he bought out of favor he always bought things that were depressed or look good on paper it maybe something didn't add up fundamentally um obviously came in and fixed a lot of companies but he never chased. He never chased. You know, the, the ideology for a lot of people is buy high and sell higher. Mm -hmm. But when the market crashed in 08, what did he do? I'll, I'll lend you 10 billion. I'm going to get a preferred stock. You're going to pay me a 10% dividend. It's going to be convertible into your stock. And when things get better, I'm going to have X. And he cleaned up because he had powder, right? He had the ability to do it when nobody else wanted it. When mm. blood's on the street, that's where money's made, right? Okay. And so that's the emotion. So that that's the best way. Well, that's a value investor, right? I mean, that's yeah. nothing, value. Nothing there's... wrong with being a value investor no. for sure. But, you know, going back to your career, kind of, you know, you were a financial advisor and kind of in a way you still are a financial advisor. But when that was kind of your main focus, you happen to be in the, the top 1% of earners. Is you classified as over $350,000 a year. How does a financial advisor get to that level? Um, consistency, dedication. I think uh, you know, th there's a longevity factor. Mm -hmm. A lot of people would be flashing the pans. I started with people that came out of the gate. They had a lot of connections and they made money out of those connections. And then when those connections dried up or the money dried up, they didn't know how to fish. Mm -hmm. So for me, I learned how to fish and I'm a rainmaker. So my mm -hmm. success has come from always being able to go fish. Mm -hmm. And so what we're doing today, I'll segue in is, you know, I'm, I don't manage money in the sense we'll do some annuities here and there, but I'm not securities licensed anymore. I don't manage mm -hmm. clients uh, assets. We're strictly insurance based. And so we started this business three years ago from scratch and I had to go fish. I had to go find new relationships, new clients, 
and do what we do. And so that's probably what served me the most that anybody who's either getting in the space or in the space that's struggling is if you don't know how to be a rainmaker and you don't know how to develop relationships and referral partners and ultimately clients and, and have a good communication skill. Like I, I, again, another line, Daniel is I don't have anything to sell. I just have problems to solve. And so you can, you convey that and you lead with that of like, I'm just a problem solver. Tell me what's going on. And if I can't do it, I know somebody else that can, but let's un, let's unriddle the mystery. And now we see, okay, so you need this, this, and this. Well, I can implement this, and I'm going to bring in Daniel to do the other side, and together you're going to have this perfect you know, plan put together, right? When I was securities licensed, I could do both. I could manage the money and the insurance vehicles. Um, you know, Now I have to bring in an investment person to, to execute that side. But it, it, it it's just... It, like anything else, it's it's honing your skills, having enough tools in your toolbox. I'm blessed with the gift of gab. You know, I'm a good communicator, but I'm a good educator. Mm -hmm. And I convey. I can set a stage, tell a story, have people understand it, put them in that story where they see how this is going to work. I think the biggest strength of mine is making sure the client understands how this is going to work for them and why. You and know, I, the line I said earlier is, you're paying me to keep you in, mm -hmm. not get you in. And I talk about that. Like, look, this is what's going to happen the next time the market shits the bed. You're going to panic. You're going to lose 10, 20, 30, 40%. You're going to ride it at 10. You'll take my advice and hang on. You'll ride it down to 20. You'll take my advice and hang in. And then 30%, you're going to start sweating. <laughs> and at 35%, you're not going to be sleeping. And at 40%, you're going to hit the panic button. And you're going to call me like, well, I just lost 400,000. If I lose it all. Right. I'm going to go back to the bank. I had my million. My million's now 600,000. Mm -hmm. If I lose another 400,000, I'm in deep doo-doo. And like, well, that's capitulation. Mm -hmm. And we just, you know, and I educate them on capitulation and what the market. And again, that's, that's what the market looks for. The market looks for that last blow off. Mm -hmm. And then it, then you see it and, and the blow off is, well, now they recommend selling. <laughs> yeah. And we're seeing it now happen too. I mean, what the Dow just hit a record. We're a little over 37,000 right now. It seems, you know, human nature and, uh, and the market seems to, you know, the world changes, but that stands the test of time. But I love how you said leading with the solution. And it seems like way back when on wall street, they just led with the sale to offload what they had, but I think it's great. And also just probably feel like a bit of a better person kind of a, frankly, leading with the solution. But sure. um, on another note regarding your story, you're actually on Bradley's podcast. So for those that don't know who he is, if there's anyone that doesn't know who he is, he's, you know, this big uh, personality, really big into sales as well. You know, you mentioned that in 2016, everything changed and there was a rough patch in your business. So can you explain a little bit about what happened there? Yeah, sure. And by the way, Brad was on my show not that long ago. I got a home and away with him. I was mm. fortunate enough to get him on. Yeah. So <clears throat> you know, this this goes back to Wall Street greed uh, and and circumstances, and and certainly I I I took my own misstep to allow it, you know, to have it happen. I I can't say I'm blameless, but we make, we make mistakes in life. It happens, you know. We, we yeah. live and we learn. Well, it, the the severity of it, the the foul and the punishment didn't didn't match up, and and unfortunately, I got caught up in in a situation. So. Uh, I was recruited during the Wall Street downturn to another major brokerage firm. And as things played out, uh, in my opinion, is I was conspired against to have mm -hmm. my business stolen. 
And as it played out, there were dozens, if not hundreds of other brokers at this firm that were suddenly being investigated and thrown out of the business and very innocuous things. Most of them, if not all of them, had nothing to do with client interactions. And yet the penalties were lifetime bans. People were being kicked out of the business. Uh, my situation was a uh, an expense report. I filed, I filed an expense report that I was accused of being fraudulent. And we could debate the merits of that. We can debate the, uh, the findings of that because th there were certainly plenty of receipts available to be utilized. I, I took the stance it was a bookkeeping uh, situation, but it was also an expense account program that I funded with my own money. Mm -hmm. so, I'm, so I'm being accused of stealing my own money, in essence. And in doing so, I was impacting the brokerage firm's financial statements which was deemed to be now an SEC violation because I'm impacting what they called their books and records mm -hmm. and that they were fraudulent, that I was making the brokerage firm file fraudulent SEC filings for my $2,000 expense report. And then the hypocrisy is you, you look at their SEC filings and they report in the millions. Like mm -hmm. two, th there's, there's not even a comma down there for the thousands. Like it's yeah, in the millions. Yeah. So if you're reporting in the millions, how is $2,000 influencing something you're not even reporting? So it was all this hypocrisy. It was all this BS. Everything was against. And the, the long story long is I lost everything. I lost a $100 million book of business. I lost my practice. I lost my ability to earn an income. I lost my license. And I had to go figure out what the hell to do with myself at 53 years of age. And it took four years of wandering in the desert like Moses to figure out you know, to what to do. And that's where... You know, the, the winter of 2020, uh, we got involved in the health insurance and Medicare space and launched Weinstein Wealth Insurance Solutions. And we're pretty much everything in the insurance world. And as we touched on before, starting from scratch and having confidence in being a rainmaker and, and rebuilt the business literally from scratch, borrowed some money. But the fall from grace was bankruptcy, losing my home, everything. We lost everything. And strictly strictly corporate greed there was a two million dollar swing in morgan's i didn't say the name before in morgan stanley's favor uh two million dollar swing in their favor by getting rid of me on top of getting to keep my clients and my assets and so they were able to literally get their hands on a hundred million dollars of assets for free mm -hmm. it's a fee-based practice at one percent that generates a million dollars of revenue for them for free for management it's a management fee yeah not even a performance fee yeah and so and then you look at again i'm very transparent about it we filed for bankruptcy down here in boca uh florida at the time in 2016 and my attorney said i don't know what's going on but you're not the only one i have I mean, he, couldn't, he couldn't give me too much obviously personal information but i know other advisors who were being banished during that window. And it's just Google it. You'll pull up dozens and dozens of names, hundreds of names of advisors. Now, Morgan Stanley wasn't the, I'm mean, sorry, Morgan Stanley was the one doing it. You, you didn't see UBS. You didn't see Merrill Lynch. You didn't see Raymond James. You didn't see a, like nobody else was having all of these expense account report violations. Mm -hmm. 
it was an epidemic suddenly because it was the thread they controlled and they had an edict they needed to get rid of people. Morgan had a $5 billion promissory note campaign that was vesting and they were on the hook to pay. When they merged with Smith Barney, mm -hmm. they gave all their advisors a retention package. And that package was valued at $5 billion. Mm -hmm. And because the market reinflated in 9, 10, 11, 12 on its own, they're like, holy crap, we're going to owe $5 billion. Like, that's going to hurt. We need a way to write that off. Or kind and of some, somebody writing. sat in the boardroom and said, who's expendable? And they're like, well, this guy over here, he, he's, he's 2 million. This one over here is a million and a half. This one over here is 3 million. And they're like, okay, we can get rid of these people and we'll recapture. You get rid of a hundred people at 2 million. You just picked up $200 million that you don't have to pay out. And whatever else comes from the upside, right? Like my assets and my revenue. And, mm -hmm. and again, you know, they're, they're, they're pit bulls bigger than than mine. I, you can't yeah. fight them. There's not enough financial resources. And then they got the regulators on their side. So they yeah. just, they play dirty. And it was just corporate greed. It sounds like, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it was another case in the sense that you have all these big banks. So, you know, for example, the Bank of America's, the JP Morgan, <laughs> the, you know, Goldman's of the world, they offer very similar services, whether it's through wealth management or kind of financial planning. And then you have the more boutique firms. So, it sounds like, you know, a lot of these firms had financial obligations to give and they didn't want to take it from their own balance sheet. So True. they sneakily decided to work with a lot of the small financial planners and then through uh, some, we'll say, corporate greed kind of uh, overtook you guys. And just probably from the management fees made, you know, whatever they owed to their own advisors. And then from the performance fee, they really, you know, unfortunately were able to make money off you guys. Does that sound right? Yeah. That's, I mean, it's look, it. If I generate a million dollars of rev fee revenue, at best, I'm going to get 40 cents on a dollar. They're getting 60. So what do they give me for that? An office and, and a part-time secretary because she works for five other people and I get the name on the door and I get to you know, put money in the pockets of all the managers above me and senior manage like management, it managed... In, in this world, management is no different than government. Government has to justify government. Management mm -hmm. has to justify management. Mm -hmm. But when they're getting 60 cents of my dollar, they're not the ones bringing in the dollar. They're not the rainmaker. You are. I am. I Look, I, again, I go back to Merrill Lynch. I remember some clown coming in one day saying, yelling at the sales force, 90 advisors, 90 brokers in the office, the audacity to say, you're this company's biggest expense. Like what? That if that's your perception of your sales force, we're the ones getting the clients, dude. Like, what are you talking about? You're my expense. You're taking money out of my pocket to sit up there screaming. I got 30 cents on a dollar back then. They made 70%. And the more you made, eventually, you know, you had breakpoints that that went up where you could get up to 40%. But for them to sit there thinking the Merrill Lynch sales force is their biggest expense, that's how they treated us, right? Like, that's how they saw us. I have a different opinion of management. <laughs> uh, something, something about big banking, man, just doesn't doesn't sound right. But you know, on the bright side, you're able to kind of build up a new business and be successful through that. And we'll get into all that in a second. But 
you know, when you went through that period in your life where you were unfortunately taken advantage of by, you know, these bigger players where just, I'll just flat out say, it, you know, the system just plays in their favor with all the lobbying and with all the, their prior executives are all somehow in government, but you know, that that's a whole nother story and could definitely make up a whole nother podcast. But when you go through that moment and when you're at your main low, you know, what kind of goes through your mind at that time and how are you able to kind of really facilitate that rebound? Well, it's a great question. And, and I think, the uh, one person's path, and people always say, like, don't judge somebody till you've walked a mile in their shoes. For right? sure. So, you know, we, we all have our baggage, our mishigash, if you're you're Jewish. Yep, we, I'm, we, I'm a proud Jew. So, by the way, first, all, these, all these little phrases yeah. I'm very, very well aware of. So feel free to I figure you, you do. I don't know if your listener does, but we all have our baggage. We all have our mishigash, right? So, you know, my childhood, your childhood, we, we all come away with our own scars. My kids will have scars as much as I try to do better for them. And so you, you walk this path. And so whatever got me to be at 53 years of age and and watching everything I built for 30 years literally be stolen from me, at no point was I ever in the corner, on the bed, in the fetal position, crying, crawling in a Jack Daniels bottle, shooting up heroin. Like it was no woe is me. And, and I, I tell this very poignant story. Uh, it'll be the opening I, I feel of my book. Um, when, when I write this book, which I'm trying to write, um, my, the anvil fell on my head. It was Friday, May 13th, 2016, when my attorney called to pretty much give me the fate of complete, like things were, were going to be done. And it took a few months to unravel, but that was pretty much when I was given this final news of you're, you're going to be out. And I had to go home and tell my wife, my attorney called at four o'clock on that Friday, the 13th. And uh, I went home, told my wife, who obviously was very, certainly, you know, much more distraught than I was, but upset and upset. And uh, we went to bed that night and I'll say we slept, but who knows? And the next morning my phone rings and it's a friend of mine from high school. And he's telling me about another friend, mutual friend. We all grew up together. He's like, did you hear about Adam's daughter? And I said, no, what? He goes, she's on semester break, whatever it's May. So she's probably done with school, but she's out with her friends and she crosses the street and gets face planted into a SUV. Drinking otherwise, who knows what the driver's drinking. She was whatever it was. Mm -hmm. She steps off the curb and gets hit by this vehicle. And he said, Adam and his wife are heading down to Maryland and they don't think she's going to make it. He says, I'll keep you posted. Da, da, da. We're all praying. And I hang up the phone and I go downstairs. I tell my wife and I said to her the following. I said, do you think Adam would trade places with us? I said, our kids are healthy. We're healthy. Like, it's just money. Like, my attitude was, after everything I just uncovered, found out, was going to be dealing with, ultimately losing my home, filing bankruptcy, everything that then played out, driving Uber for a year, you know, struggling for four years to refine a purpose in life. My attitude was, it's just money. And I'll figure it out. I'm a rainmaker. I have confidence in myself. I'll get in the car the next day and start driving Uber. Now, fast forward, she survived, thankfully, and she's doing okay. Because she's had she's had some struggles, but you know, just to put a, a pin in that story, she did survive. But the point was my perspective 
in that moment was what's happening to us is nothing. What's happening to them is real. Their daughter is potentially not going to survive. Right. And, and so that was my perspective because none of us lose until we stop. Mm-hmm. And we shouldn't stop until that last breath is taken out of us. Right. And so, you know, it, it's, you know, all the cliches, how many times you get knocked down and how many times you get back up. Right. So, you know, that that's just always been my inner dial. Mm-hmm. And a lot of it comes from early tribulations as a kid, folks divorced when I was eight, my mother dying when I was 22. And, you know, all of these things that, that those are my shoes. Those are the miles I walked for 53 miles, right? 53 years to get to that point, to be able to deal with that adversity and to shrug it off. And it's like, ah, we'll figure it out. It sucked. No, not telling you it didn't suck. It sucked. But there's the old line that says, I'd rather love and lost than never have loved before. Mm-hmm. Well, it's the same true with money. Right. I've, I've had money. I've mm-hmm. lost, but I can't, you know, I come from nothing and I still have most of it. Like I mm-hmm. came from no money. It was nice having money. I'm okay. I'm used to not having money, but boy, I'd rather have money. Like it's yeah, sure. right. So, you know, I, my motivation now is to build back and in, in some capacity along the lines of what we used to have and get back to a lifestyle we, we liked and we afforded back then. And, uh, you know, what are we coming up? Seven, seven plus years. So it's been a journey, go. Been a journey for sure. Yeah. Well, Brett, I don't know why I keep saying Brett. I don't know. You know, sometimes I'm, I'm, I'll just, I'll leave this in the episode, but for whatever reason, sometimes just have a name in your mind and then for whatever reason, you can't say that straight. So sorry if I said that Bruce, I'll have, to, I'll have to remember moving that going forward, but exactly. Okay. I have to commend you. Definitely a, a beautiful story there. And I think a lot of times in life, well, actually I'll say this first, you know, I, I've, used to get sick of cliches and always used to be like, oh, that doesn't apply to me. That's very generic. But if you really think about it, cliches are cliches for a reason. I mean, if it's something withstands the test of time, it might, might be worth, uh, sure. worth meriting for sure. And I think a lot of times in life, unfortunately, when we're going through a difficult situation, you know, sometimes for whatever reason in our control, out of our control, we see someone else's situation and then it's really humbling because we're like, oh, I thought my situation was bad. But then you see someone else's and you know, I think a lot of times money is definitely a really stressful issue for a lot. And, you know, fairly so. I mean, it is, you know, we all got to eat. We all have to put food on our table. But if you think about everything else you have in life, you just realize it's one factor. And if you're happy or can appreciate everything else you have and are confident kind of in your ability to be a rainmaker, make money come in the future, you know, I'm sure that uh, a lot of people can go on that path. So truly an inspiration and definitely, you know, know that you're going to kind of keep going there. And I mean, you've been going there, but you're only going to keep moving forward. And speaking of kind of what you were able to do during your second year of, you know, opening up this insurance practice, you're able to make over $200,000 in commissions, you know, from starting from zero, what steps did you take to really get to that point? To just grind, grind and grind. Um, so my, my practice previously, uh, an investment advisor, as we noted, was fee-based, right? Mm-hmm. I built up, I got away from being a transactional broker to a fee-based advisor and assets under management. So all you did was just keep bringing more money and you get your fees and you manage attrition and stock market volatility, but your business should be constantly moving in an upward fashion, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, until the market corrects. And uh, so when I left, when I lost all that and I had a 
find something new. Oh, you'd be really good at a realtor. You should be a mortgage broker. You should be. And I'm like, those are all transactions. Yep. And I said, I want to be able to do something to recreate a revenue stream, recurring revenue stream. And that's the world of insurance. Not all of it, but some of it, a good part of it. So if you get auto and home owner clients and they stay on the books and retention's about 70, 80%, well, they just keep renewing, right? Mm -hmm. So you make you don't make as much in renewals, but you're making something. And then there's Obamacare and health insurance and private health insurance. And, you know, they'll pay consistently. Medicare pays. I tell people all the time, it doesn't cost you anything extra to work with us in the insurance world. The insurance companies pay us. We don't set the prices. Your underwriting does, your health does, the marketplace, like prices are set. There, there's, there's no, I can't discount your marketplace health insurance or your Medicare cost. Yep. These are the prices. You want it, you want it. But whether you sign up for me or talk to seven other people, the rates are the rates. Mm -hmm. And so you build up that book of business and all of a sudden you start stacking nickels. Obviously it's much smaller transactions, but if they pay you $20 a month and you get a hundred people and now you have 500 people, all those nickels start to become dollars, right? So yeah. you, you just add, 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 and then maybe there's a cross sale and oh, by the way, and we do this. And you know, eventually I started the podcast, come follow my show. And now they're learning about other things. And I didn't know you did that. And of course, you know what, we can help you with that. So I'm duly licensed. I'm property yeah. and casualty as well as life and health. So I can attract both sides. And then I still keep my flag in the sense of that financial advisor, because yes, I can counsel them on certain things. And I'm very obviously transparent. I don't manage your money. I work with other partners, friends of mine, colleagues, whatever, or I'll work with yours and you'll get my expertise of 38 years plus theirs. And we'll help you solve these issues and they'll implement the management of your assets and I'll handle anything that's insurance related. And so that's that's just been the grind. And it's for me, it's interacting locally mm -hmm. in the communities like the chambers and networking groups. Then, you know, with COVID, we launched during COVID, everything was online. So I got into all these national based, you know, other city based groups that you could plug in at eight o'clock in the morning. And all of a sudden I'm in a group in Dallas and I'm a group in Las Vegas and I'm a group in in uh, Santa Clara, California. Like you're meeting people and it's mm -hmm. like, Hey, can you help with this? Yeah. Yeah. We can help you. And so you, I hired people that helped my business based on what they did. And I was able to gravitate and get clients. And then a big piece for me is referral partners with agents that don't do what I do. Mm -hmm. So if you were a Medicare expert and most people will only do one silo of the space, they might only do health insurance. They might only do life insurance. They might only do Medicare. The auto and home people certainly don't, you come over to the other side of that fence. And that's, so that's why I'm licensed. So I have all these referral partners around the country that do auto and home and they refer me their health and Medicare. And if they get their license, we revenue share. And then I bring them auto and home in their markets and they pay me because I'm licensed. Mm -hmm. And so now you, you get the abundance of those relationships that are always bringing opportunities. We do group health insurance. We do AFLAC. We do like you name it, we do it. So it it's I, one of my pages on Facebook is if it has an eye, I'm your guy. Anything insurance related. Got it. I, you know, it, it just, what do you need? And again, remember I said earlier, I don't have anything to sell you. 
You're going to tell me what's going on, and I'm going to point out areas of vulnerability. And I'm like, Daniel, what do you want to do about it? Is it important enough to you? Well, then this is what you should be doing. And we could talk about X, Y, and Z and what to implement in your budget and yada, yada. So I think it's a, it's a much better way of looking at it and definitely uh, great to have more of a solutions-based approach. And I like the fact that you're able to bring on people. And it's not just that you know one is servicing or one is kind of selling the other, but it's that you're working together and trying to kind of win for the clients and win for your partners as well. Uh, but I think that's beautiful. You know, More specific to one of the things that you do in insurance, you have on your LinkedIn that you're trying to transform the one size fits all insurance methodology. So one, what is that methodology? And two, kind of how are you able to, you know, really offer solutions for people that fit their specific situation? Well, again, it goes back to the people who just do what they do, maybe as a specialist. And As an example, this is maybe 15 years ago. A buddy of mine lost his job, never was in sales, uh, tried selling cars. Mm -hmm. And then he's like, hey, uh, I got an opportunity to sell long-term care insurance. What do you think? And and I I was doing long-term care insurance back then, still do it. And I said, why just that? He goes, what do you mean? Like somebody was offering him an opportunity and, you know, was – priming him to to go do this. And I said, so when you go to sit with somebody and they say they need life insurance, they need a reverse mortgage, uh, they need disability, are you just going to close up your suitcase and leave? Because all you have is a hammer and they're telling you they need to buy a screwdriver. Mm-hmm. Well, my toolbox has a, you know, a, a Phillips head and a flat head and a drill oh, and a hammer and a, and a sanding machine. Like, You've got to have the, enough tools in your toolbox so when you go to sit with somebody, it's their agenda. It's not mm-hmm. my agenda. So when I say one size fits all, how many people are just trying to fit a square peg in a round hole? Like they're just there to sell what they have today. If you go to the Jeep dealer and you're looking to buy a Lexus, well, then you're at the wrong dealership. You 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 know you can't walk around the Jeep dealer going, I don't see any Lexuses here. No, it's a... All right, so that guy's going to try and sell you a Jeep now, isn't he? Because you came into the Jeep dealer, but you want a Lexus. Mm-hmm. And good luck. He's going to try and so it's no different in the insurance world. If if I need disability, why are we talking about long term care? If I need life insurance, why are we talking about health insurance? And so that's where I always, as that financial advisor, when I was fully licensed on the security side, it didn't matter what you needed. I had it. And if and if I didn't have it, I would bring in somebody who did. So I always had a trusted advisor group, accountants, attorneys, other professionals. I didn't do Medicare back then. I didn't do health and when I nobody usually if you're a securities license, you're not doing health and Medicare. There's no outlet in the brokerage industry. You could do life insurance, you could do long term care, disability, annuities. But I referred that out. So they were part of, and, and even long-term care, I had people in my networking group because it wasn't a big part of my business at that point. I'd rather get the referrals back, let them have that sale if they were going to give me the other business opportunities. So it's just following that same line now of what do you, what do you need? For sure. I also think the image I have in my head is say someone who needs, you know, a square 
or say like some kind of screw, he goes to this one person or, and he tries to sell them seven, 17 different solutions except the one he needs. As opposed to your point of view, someone goes to you with one issue, you're like, I have all these potential solutions, which one of these fits your issue? So definitely, I think a, a good way to approach. And I'm happy that, you know, it seems like you've taken a much more people conscious approach instead of, you know, the old Wall Street days. Uh, on another note, oh, sure, you were going to say? Well, I was, I, yeah, I was going to add in. I appreciate it. Thank you. Is in 2011, I passed my CFP, Certified Financial Planner. And so if you think of the mandate from the CFP world, it, it's kind of like the doctors with the Hippocratic Oath. Yep. <laughs> it is, it, you know, it, it's do no harm, right? It's it's lead with value. It's It's what's problem solve. And so that's how my career really has been well before I passed the exam. And that's how I carry it out even to this day, even though I'm not, I'm not a CFP uh, at the present time. Um, that, that was part of what happened with the securities license. Uh, I am waiting to hear back for reinstatement. Yeah. So I, I'm keeping my fingers crossed there, but no, yeah. I, I can't, I can't refer to myself as one, but it doesn't change the knowledge that's in my brain and it doesn't change the way I carry my business um, execution in helping people whether I can call myself that or not, I'm still a problem solver. And that's that's really what the CFP does. It's 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 not about the sale, right? It's not you're not supposed to lead with product commission, it's problem. What's the problem? And check the boxes and did we touch touch on everything like a doctor? Doctor doesn't tell you what's wrong as much as they tell you what you don't have. Yep. Because by what they're asking you. I just came from the doctor this morning. I had to go to an allergist and he's asking me a million questions. And eventually he put 60 little pinpricks in my back to tell me what I'm not allergic to. Mm -hmm. Right. So isn't that the same thing as we're diagnosing somebody's financial situation and telling them as much as what they don't have versus what they need to be doing. Yeah, for sure. And a beautiful note on that. You know, another thing that you spoke about before uh, was Someday Isle. And, you know, I know you've mentioned that in the video before, but how would you say, well, one, what would you say Someday Isle is and how has that impacted your view on your business? So my mother died at the age of 45 from breast cancer. She suffered for about five and a half years. She got sick when I was a senior in high school. My folks divorced when I was eight. My mother raised my brother and I. Uh, six and eight years old on her own, pretty much. My dad was a Saturday dad at best. And uh, that's that's other therapy sessions for another time. Yep. And so my mother lived and I heard from her as a you know preteen teen, someday I'll do this and someday I'll do that. And when you kids are out of high school, I'll get to do this. And so she always lived on someday I'll do something else. I'll get to take that trip. I'll go on, you know, this expedition. I'll buy a different car, whatever it was, whatever, whatever her dreams or ambitions, I refer to it, Woody Woofy. What do you want for yourself? Whatever her Woody Woofies were was on the back burner because the money and her time were put for us mm -hmm. as her children, as most parents will sacrifice, right? And so due to her illness, she never really got to go to Someday Isle. And so I use that story and metaphor 
And at 23 years of age, when I got into the brokerage industry, that was kind of my edict. You know, as as much as it was a transactional nature, and I shared some of the things I I pay you to sell, not to think. I was thinking. I was planning before it was planning. I would cold call two, three hundred dials a day, and listen to what was on the phone. If it was a woman with a baby in the background, I would talk about college planning. If it was a senior community, I would talk about income for a retiree. Like you would listen and pivot and take the conversation into a consultative conversation to get a hook, to get a conversation. I'm a stranger. I'm interrupting their day. Mm -hmm. But I'd be like, Daniel, it sounds like there's a baby in the room. Have you and your spouse uh, done anything in regards to planning for your child's college? Well, here at Merrill Lynch, we have blah, 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 zero coupon bonds. We do this and this, da, da, da. Like, is that something that perhaps you and your husband would like to look into further? Right. Whatever it was, but you're making them stop and think in in the day. So it was always consultative in that regard. And that's just how I've always operated. You know, I think, unfortunately, you know, we can get into the whole spirituality of it, but I think that's also a whole other podcast episode or podcast in itself. But a lot of times there's no way to rationalize uh, practical circumstances and difference in practical circumstances. And tomorrow is never guaranteed. So hopefully we no. can. Uh, you know, but not that, I'm sorry. Sure, you're good. You're good after you. No, it, 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 I, I cut off into the middle of the story, but the someday aisle propelled me to empower my clients to want to retire or be able to retire as early as possible and to challenge them and to make them think a little bit differently than the status quo. And well, what do you need to do, Daniel, to retire at 55? Is that something you really want? You know, people are always like, well, I can't retire because I can't afford health insurance or I got to wait till I'm 65 to get Social Security. Well, do you? No, you can take Social Security at 62, can't you? You could retire at 60 and wait to get Social Security. Like one has nothing to do with the other if you know what you're doing and mm -hmm. you have the resources prepared. But when two-thirds of the country retire based on Social Security, well, there is no other. <laughs> like, that's not the A client in the financial planning space, right? Like, they don't have any other assets. They don't have anything else. They've, they've failed themselves and didn't get the help. So why I have my podcast is to give financial literacy to mm -hmm. those. Look, the Merrill Lynch's out there want a million-dollar relationship to start. Mm -hmm. They've all moved into that realm throughout my career that it used to be a quarter million and a half a million and a million. And, you know, even Goldman Sachs might be 10 million. Yep. Oh, I don't know about you. You got 10 million lying around. Did you wake up with 10 million in the bank? Like, are you a spoon, you know, trust baby? Because I wasn't. Okay. I used to dumpster dive for nickels and quarters, like get cans and bottles before you put it at the curb. Like we used to take it to the Coca-Cola plant and get money mm -hmm. and, and go buy a pizza. Like you had a hustle. So. How does the everyday person get professional help at that realm when they don't have a minimum to meet? Mm -hmm. I used to, I started out my career cold calling. IRAs were just becoming a thing in 1987. And my conversation was, hi, Daniel, it's Bruce Weinstein from Merrill Lynch. Let me ask you a quick question. Did you fund your IRA yet for 1987? It was a whopping $2,000. Mm -hmm. 
mm-hmm. and I opened up IRA account after IRA account. And I got two thousand dollars. It's awesome. Okay, well, you can't do that today if they have a million dollar account minimum. So where's the guy who's got the two grand going to turn? That's well, going to help, right? Yeah. So you know, Ken Fisher's got a minimum. People have minimums, and mm-hmm. so part of my determination of ask the plan man was to have episodes on all walks of all topics of insurance and finance literacy, financial literacy, that you could go out and say, I need to know more about blank. Oh, episode 17 of Bruce's is going to talk about that. Let me go listen to watch that episode. And so I want to create a legacy. I want to take 38 years plus of doing this and putting all that in and helping people understand it, having conversations and get nuggets and they could do it themselves. There's no products. I'm not selling anything. I'm not recommending anything. I'm just giving education. Mm-hmm. I'm not violating. I'm not violating any kind of uh, you know securities acts. I'm not giving advice. I'm not selling advice. I'm not telling you what to do. I'm not telling you to go buy Bitcoin. I'm not telling you not to buy Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. I'm telling you how Bitcoin what might work, right? Mm-hmm. Or have somebody on to talk about blockchain. But I'm not endorsing it. I'm not. Um, but yeah, so that that's. That's the flaw in the system between the haves and the have-nots and the 1%, right, that I was blessed to, to be earning in that capacity. Never certainly felt like I was part of that one. <laughs> it's it's the one-tenth of 1% that's the true wealth. It's yeah. not the 1%. And then back to the someday aisle is just empowering people to, look, why is it called plan man? And my what's my opening is everybody needs a plan. Not doing something's a plan. It's a plan to fail. It's a plan, mm-hmm. right? So if you want to succeed and you want to do things, well, what's the plan? And so that's where the, the naming of the show and, and the, the premise of the show is you could have anything you want as long as you plan properly, give yourself the time, understand the risks of what you're embarking on. But if you, you're a younger person than I. So what are your goals? What are your dreams? What's your Woody Woofy? Now work it backwards. What's the formula? Work it backwards. I need to save this amount of money at this rate of return for this amount of time. Can I make that happen? Well, I don't have that kind of money to save. Okay, problem number one. How do you get that money? That means I need more time. Mm-hmm. That means I need a better rate of return. So what those things, are, you know, that's what you can control. Work through. And I talk on the show about budget and the importance of budgeting. Because it's, it's your budget today, but it's your budget in retirement. So when you say, I want to retire at 50 or 55, well, what are retiring to? You want the same lifestyle? You want the same net income? You want 100 grand a year after tax to spend, inflation adjusted at 5% for the next 40 years? How'd you calculate that? How much money do you need? How do you work that backwards? Right? So again, I'm just spitballing with you, but mm-hmm. you get the point. Like there's, there's, soft, there's software aplenty. Mm-hmm. The software is only as good as if you know what to do with it. Yep. Right. And and the person that's maybe helping coach you through it and interpreting it. And then the big old question is, now what? Like what do mm-hmm. I what do I do with my money? Right? I got my money in, I built up my million dollars. Well, how am I supposed to use it on the back end? And because most of us, if they're in a corporate world, they're not surrounded by money. They don't understand money. They're not huge risk takers. Their wealth was accumulated in their retirement plans and their 401ks. And now it's in their control. And it's like, what am I supposed to do with this? 
Mm-hmm. I got two million. I got two million dollars in my Johnson and Johnson four hundred one k because Johnson and Johnson did really well, and I didn't know any better, and I only bought their stock, and now I'm sixty two and retiring. It's like I don't know about diversification. I don't know what I'm supposed to do with this money, but I got two million dollars. How much can I spend? What's the tax implications? How do I leave it to my kids? Like what? There's a million. That's not in a textbook somewhere. It's mm-hmm. a conversation, right? It's I'm a custom tailor. Mm-hmm. You have to figure it out. For sure. Software can only take us so far, but it's important to know all those different factors. And I like how you mentioned all those different kind of back calculations and how you're able to look at clients' goals. And I really think that's what separates the people who are just looking for fees versus the people that are looking to build relationships and have long-term clients. So I definitely commend you on that. You know, on a slightly different note, you mentioned on uh, LinkedIn, there's a really funny post you had about some mandatory topics that you thought could be taught in schools, but for whatever reason, aren't taught in schools. So what do you think that schools should teach these days that unfortunately they, they don't teach? <laughs> oh, there was, I, I, I made a Canva, right? It was a post of like, it was a not, Canva, yeah. They, yeah, they're not, they're not teaching you. Well, I mean, I just think about when, when I was in school in the seventies and early eighties, I took a typing class. Mm-hmm. I, I had to learn how to type, which oh. I'm really good on a computer, but you know, back then, uh, I didn't take home economics. I didn't learn how to cook. Um, I know how to order out and get yeah. delivery. <laughs> uh, but, you know, again, the financial literacy type of things. What goes into auto insurance? What goes into homeowners insurance? You know, rent. How many people rent don't realize, like, what they're at risk for renting? Uh, renter's insurance. How many in the population rent? Um I have an episode on leasing versus financing a car. Mm-hmm. I have episodes on how your credit scores are derived and impacted. This stuff's not taught in school. We have friends who have their teenage kids listen to my episodes. Smart. Because it brings them understanding of like, listen to what Bruce is talking about. Like, this is how you do things. This is why you don't close a credit card or why you don't leave your credit card maxed. Or if you do, why you see your credit scores going down. And then when you go to apply for a mortgage. Um, so, you know, that's the kind of stuff that I'm putting out because it's not given in the schools. And look, again, it's it's another rabbit hole conversation as to why or why not and how society has deemed what schools should be providing and what they shouldn't. But, mm-hmm. you know, when people push back off of that, that post and canvas of like, well, it's the parent's responsibility. If nobody taught your parent, how's your parents supposed to teach you? It's a fact. My, my grandparents came over from the boat from the old country, as they say, they didn't know from this. So who's teaching my mother and father this, not their parents. Mm-hmm. Right. So now they acclimate into the 20th century of, of America and, and the ways my parents had to figure it out. They didn't instill it in me. They didn't sit down with me and say, look, someday you're going to need homeowner's insurance. And this is what a deductible means. Information's not out there. Now, I, I happen to be a student enough because I'm in the space. Mm-hmm. But you talk, I talk to my friends who are not in the space. They're 60 years of age. They're like, uh, what's this deductible thing? <laughs> really? Like, what's a co-insurance? What's this co- Like, it the fundamental thing, this is why we got back into the space and added health insurance. I'm appalled by the total lack of education in the realm of health and Medicare. Mm-hmm. Now, we're talking Medicare recipients, 65-year-old people that still don't understand financial literacy 
in the, in the context of how their Medicare is supposed to work, what they're supposed to do, how they're supposed to do it. And then they get bombarded with a foot high stack of papers, confusing the hell out of them. And then it's like, how am I supposed to navigate this? And God forbid they try and ask people at Medicare or at the IRS or at Social Security. Because you call Social Security Administration and ask the same question to three people and get three totally different answers. How does that happen? There's no checks and balances. These people are giving out wrong information every day. For sure. And then you, and then you the consumer, are stuck with the bad advice you were given and told, tough luck, you made your choice. You can't reverse it. It happened to my stepmother. It's unfortunate. And it's a true, I mean, this is a true story. This is not like a hyperbole. I'm like, my stepmother called three different agents at Social Security when, this is a few years ago, when she was trying to take and file her Social Security. And there was a thing of age and working and how many quarters and the discounts. And, you know, she had worked overseas and, and she could not get the same answer from three people, picked one. <laughs> And then it was still bad advice and it was still wrong. And they said, well, too bad. You, But there was no accountability of like, but your people told me this. Too bad. That's the issue with a lot of these, especially <laughs> government organizations. There's so many layers of bureaucracy there that the difference between the, the correct news and just some random news is unfortunately uh, too easy to hear these days. So uh, it's great that you're able to put a show together. And by the way, I love the name of the plan, man. So simple. All the best that shows of simple names, uh, but okay. really beautiful there. And Definitely recommend anyone take a listen just to get some practical financial tips. So we'll uh, make sure to leave the link in the description there. Uh, on a quick follow-up note to that, and feel free to say yours, but during your experience and during your kind of career journey, what have been some of your favorite books or podcasts that you've gotten a chance to read or listen to? Wow. Uh, I go way back to Cassettes on Tape. <laughs> um, Is there a podcast called Cassettes on Tape or... We should start one. We should, we should pull them all out of my, uh, I still have them in the garage. Uh, wow. You know, I've been a student. I've shared with you about tools in the toolbox and, and, and just skill sets. Uh, there was a gentleman by the name of Earl Nightingale, Nightingale Conant. And I had books on tape, uh, a subscription to that. I get introduced to the likes of Zig Ziglar. Uh, and his multitude of, of books or books on tape, sales oriented, motivational, Brian Tracy, um, boy, there's a lot of power people back then, Brian, uh, Stephen Covey, um, seven habits of highly effective people, uh, read a great book. The millionaire next door mm -hmm. was a great book in understanding the psycho psychological differences between people with money, without how people with money treated money, how the millionaire next door was, you know, treating money way differently, which is part of my episode on the car, buying used cars versus leasing cars yeah. and the trap and the pitfalls of leasing and, you know, versus, you know, that guy with $2 million in his J and J account, that particular client was the groundskeeper for J and J. He was a client of mine. Mm -hmm. Never made more than 50 grand a year. He was not an educated person, a lovely person, no disrespect to the person. But after whatever many 40 years, he had sizable, he had stock options in J&J. &J, he had stock in J&J. &J, he had a pension from J&J. &J. He didn't know what to do with it all. Mm. He was a millionaire next door. He drove, you know, his little Chevy minivans and... They lived modestly in a nice little neighborhood in central New Jersey. 
They weren't living high on the hog. They weren't driving $80,000 Mercedes. Mm -hmm. But the doctor down the street that was making 300 grand a year was trying to live a lifestyle. Didn't have $2 million in the bank. Didn't have a pension. Like, you know, so the millionaire next door really put some clarity in all of that of how to deal with people and certainly not to preconceive people. So, you know, th those are the early years of stuff. And then, you know, these days I do Audible and there's just a multitude of, of stuff out there on a regular basis. Uh, I listen to Brad Lee's podcast with some consistency, Grant Cardone, uh, David Meltzer, <laughs> um, Alex Homozi has a show I started listening to. Uh, I forget the guy's name of, you know. Um, What's he doing? It, I, I have my phone down there. It's the guy who wrote the book, like, The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck. Oh, that does sound really familiar. It's, I know I know the book. He, he's, I don't he, he's got a couple books. He's got a podcast. Um, I follow Coach Burt. I've uh, been part of the Coach Burt world for th over three years now. Um, which is how I met Brad Lee uh, and Grant Cardone and David Meltzer and some of the others. So, you know, the, the, again, here's things and, and your lessons is, you know, your, your, you could say it either way, your network is your net worth, your net worth is your network. But again, the, these are some of the cliches we touched on uh, earlier. You know, the word cliche is you're, if you're the smartest one in the room, you're in the wrong room. Mm -hmm. Right. You got to get in better rooms. You got to elevate your game. You got to be surrounded by better, stronger people. So I've paid to go to events. I've paid more to be the VIP section of the events and the private dinner in the events to get to meet and greet and to meet these people. So when I'm on Brad's show and we talk about a little bit when I'm on his show, how I got to that point to be invited onto his show, the serendipity of it all and the connecting of the dots and where it all started. And playing into all of that and leaning into it mm -hmm. and making it happen. And that's the serendipity of it. And then joining his mastermind, coming on his show, and eventually saying, hey, would you come on my show? Mm -hmm. And he's like, yeah. Why? Because I paid to be in his groups. I paid to be part of his community. And so he's going to give back to people in his community. So why wouldn't he come on my show if I'm part of his community? Mm -hmm. Right? So he came on the show. And people are like, dude, how did you get him on the show? Well, it took three years of the serendipity of the relationship building and paying to be in the right rooms to get some FaceTime to where at one point, this is like two years ago, we're at an event with Tim Grover, who I, I kind of know. Mm -hmm. And it's the post event and Cardone was the keynote and Coach Burt spoke and Renee Rodriguez spoke and, and Brad spoke and Grover spoke. And, I, and then there was a post event and people are mingling and I'm sitting down and Brad sits down across from me. And, you know, we'd seen each other for the 48 hours we've been together. We were on the plane together and he looks over at me. I was, the, I didn't know who he was. And everybody was up his ass. <laughs> oh, Bradley. Oh, Bradley. Hey, this and that and everything else. I, I didn't barely gave him two seconds because I didn't know who he was. I wasn't enamored. Right. So he sits down and he's looking at me and he goes, so what do you do? Because I didn't give a shit about him. Like, I didn't know who he was. So I wasn't licking his ass. So he's kind of like curious, like, who's this dude? Like, he don't really care about me. Like, he's not. And I'm like, oh, you know, da, 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 da. And so that became. And then we saw each other a year later. And I pointed out, reminded him and da, da, da. And it just kept paying it forward, paying mm -hmm. it forward. And so now I have the podcast. He see, I wear the shirts everywhere. 
I, I like, like the shirt, by the way. It's a beautiful design. Huh? You want? Tell me what size you're. I'll get you one. God, I'm I'm a medium. We'll uh, we'll take care yeah. of that off there, but I appreciate it. So he sees this at a year later, and he goes, "What's that?" And I said, "Well, that's my podcast." He's like, "I'll tell you what." And they were they were doing another boot camp. Him and Coach Bert up in Nashville, and he goes, "You come to that boot camp, and I'll have you on my podcast, and we'll promote your podcast." And he walks around with the camera crew all the time. And I look at his camera and I'm like, you got that on film? Don't, don't erase that. You heard him say that. And I signed up for the boot camp and I was nervous going up to him. And I'm at the boot camp and I'm like, so here I am. And, da, 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 and you made this statement. He goes, yeah, just, you know, text me Monday. I'm like, text you. He goes, you don't have my cell number? No. He goes, here, gives me a cell number. I'm like, I got Bradley. So like, you know, now I'm like, oh my God. And so I wrote him and he said, talk to Maria, gave me Maria's information, wrote Maria. Boom, boom, boom. A couple months later, I'm on the show. You know, I think it's it's a beautiful story, one, and awesome that you were able to get connected with him. But I think it's it goes to show that at the end of the day, a lot of these people who are really accomplished, you know, this is going to sound cliche, but they're just people. You know, they want to have meaningful <clears throat> connections. They want to meet people. I mean, it's always nice to be like, hey, you know, love the kind of work you do. But, you know, they really want to connect with people. And a lot of times it can almost be overwhelming to be enamored and they just want to be spoken to like a person. So, yeah, really great that you got that experience for sure. He he embraces and encourages it, but he knows people are intimidated to do it. But he loves when people stop him. He goes, why wouldn't I? Mm -hmm. You know, I'm sorry to interrupt. I'm sorry to bother you with your family. You know, he's like, it's it's when they don't, that bothers him. I mean, he's got a little bit of a different ego than some people. But no, it's, look, it depends what you're out doing and what you want. Mm -hmm. um, I like going to events now. And now it's like, oh, there's the plan, man. Like my reputation and I'm being... Uh, visible and I want more visibility. I would coming on other podcasts like this to, you know, talk and, you know, get exposure. Like if, if that's your wheelhouse, but we talked before about the serendipity and, and being a rainmaker, well, then these are the actions rainmakers need to do to elevate. I can keep doing what I'm doing, but I want more. So I need to figure out how to get to that next level with what I'm doing. And by the way, if I was securities licensed, I couldn't be doing this. That's true too. You know, so you think of, about the, the, I'm sorry, the blessing in disguise yeah. is, you know, where my path took me because of that massive setback that here's the comeback, right? Like here's, look at this. It's going to be even better and bigger than what I have. I just have to be patient and keep pushing it. You know, ahead, it goes, no, it's okay. It goes to what you said earlier in the sense of people being emotional. You know, a lot of times people will see, you know, you speaking to someone or you showing up on shows or you getting connected with these you know, more high profile or public people will be like, wow, how did that happen? You're like, it took me three years. And then right. people don't comprehend that the amount of time it takes to build something special. They, well, I actually had a guest not too long ago by the name of uh, Annie Margarita Yang. She's kind of big in the financial space, authored a few financial books. Uh, but she said that the issue is a lot of people think of overnight successes, you know, in the sense that in reality, they discovered them overnight, but it took years and years of time right. and relationship building to <clears> get there. So definitely- yeah, it's interesting to see that that theme reverberated for sure. I'm I'm working on my 38 year overnight success story. Yeah, for <laughs> sure. I mean, you're getting there. Um, yeah. Bruce, if you could go back and tell your 10 year old self something, what would you tell him? Man, so many lessons, so many screw ups. You know, I don't live in the world of regret. <laughs> I take everything as a lesson. Uh, the the set the setback leads to the comeback. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I've made moves and look back and just count the blessings of what came from it. Mm -hmm. The experiences, the new people I met, 
you know, I bounced around in the brokerage world and each time left people behind, but then got to meet new people. And those new people became dear and closer friends. So I didn't lose the, the first wave. I added more in the second wave. And maybe I wouldn't have met them if I'd stayed there. Right. So I've always enriched my life with new people and new meetings. And so even bad situations that I had ultimately got a couple of nice relationships from it. Um, so you know, what do I tell the 10 year old self? Um, again, it, it more cliches to just keep swinging. I mean, it's all like, you know, just keep swinging, dust yourself off, just keep going. It, it gets better. It doesn't always, you know, look, <laughs> I got a lot of lines, life, <laughs> lines are life, good. <laughs> life. No one gets out alive. Like li life is tough. Like no one gets out alive. Like we all, it all ends. And so, you just got to keep swinging and dusting yourself off and getting back up. And if it doesn't kill you, it makes you stronger. I mean, these are all these cliches, but I'm living proof of it. And so, you know, I tell the 10 year old, you know, it gets better. It doesn't necessarily get easier. And uh, I'll give you one more, Daniel. I don't know how much more time you want to Sure. Take, go, take but... your time. I have a few other, a few other fun questions, but don't worry. Don't worry about it. It won't oh. keep you too, too long. Um, so through, I'll, I'll set it up and then I'll give, I'll give the, 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 the back end of the story, but early on, and a lot of people, your listeners out there, people should be, if they haven't done given an exercise, what do you want your obituary to say? I think even Charlie Munger said that, uh, when I was reading some of his stuff, um, how do you define your life? What do you want your obituary to say? And how do you leave the world? Because at the end of the day, we're all going to be a blip in the scheme of time. Like, you know, you, we're all two generations from being forgotten. Mm -hmm. If you think about the power of that statement, right? Like I knew my grandparents, my kids don't know my grandparents and I don't know my great grandparents. Right. So we're all two generations away from being forgotten. And so I had the exercise many years ago of what you want your obituary to say. And I can't necessarily say what I wrote back then, but if everything I've conveyed to you today and how I run my business and how I try and help people and my servitude of mankind is to leave it a better place and to give what I've learned and possessed and, and put it out there, which is why I invest the money in the plan, man, and, and, and put this material out there from a legacy standpoint, with losing my business, I had the, I'll say necessity, but there were, there were two moments when I was dealing with the regulators that I had about 30 or 40 client letters, testimonials of why they were standing up for me in hopes I wouldn't lose my license. Mm -hmm. And then another wave, similar some of those clients, but more, let's say, colleagues, friends, whatever, as character testimonials to get reinstated for my CFP. Mm -hmm. So I've got upwards of 60 letters. You want to talk about reading your own obituary? You want to talk about being at your own funeral? I have been blessed to have heard my own eulogies. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm getting emotional. I can't tell you how powerful 
and experience in getting those letters and how humbling and how blessed where I would go back to people. I'm like, did you really mean that? And they're like, absolutely. And it is beyond, hum I'm tingling. Like it's Ooh. beyond humbling that through everything I dealt with, through all the failures and, and the monetary setbacks and the things that my wife and I have had to live through, that one of the biggest blessings is to have those documents and those testimonials. And at 53, 57 years of age, it's just propelled me to be that much better now with mm -hmm. what I'm doing, having heard that, that my mission and my drive and, and doing this with you is so passionate in making it bigger and better because I, in, in a small capacity for the first 30 years, look how much I did and influenced others. How much more can I do? And now it's not one-to-one, -one, it's one-to-many. Mm -hmm. And the power is one-to-many, right? The guys you're talking about in the world, the Grant Cardones and the Brad Lees and the Coach Burts, they're one-to-manys. They have millions of followers. I'd love to have, imagine what I could do if I had millions of followers. Mm -hmm besides the five or eight that I have. <laughs> I got a few hundred. Well, I, got, I got more than that. But you, you understand what I'm saying. So now you take that, you know, back to that 10-year-old. I just turned 60 this summer. You look great for 60, by the way. Sorry to interrupt your... Uh, thank you. No, thank you. Piece, but... I'm a little, little haggard from open enrollment season, but thank you. No, I, I lost about 65 pounds. I, I put a couple back, but thank you. No, I'm blessed. I do not color my hair. <laughs> I have no plastic surgery. It is not a toupee. Um, no, I'm blessed. Thank you. Um, you would think with the stress in my life, I would be a lot worse off, right? So, um, but yeah, it it... I got more to do. I, I spoke at an event in October and I want to do more speaking and it's not necessarily going to be financial based, but just that motivational side. And I'll, I'll leave this piece of the obituary. And then what I said to the crowd was envision a person suffocating 30 seconds, 45 seconds, 60 seconds, the panic now, suiting in. They can't get that grasp of air now into two minutes. Then they're starting to, you know, whatever. And they're totally panicking and their life's about to be snuffed out. And they're suddenly given oxygen. And I, and I did very demonstrably. I'm like, Pfft. you suddenly have air after all that time and panic. And I said, and that was me. I spent four years suffocating, not knowing what to do with myself. I was struggling to find me after losing what I had done for 30 years. And when I finally had the epiphany and the aha to do what we're doing now with the insurance work, <sniffs> dude, I got air. Mm -hmm. I got purpose. I got cured of terminal cancer. Like I got reborn. And so when I said before, like, I'm just getting started, like, there's a lot I got and want to do. I'm trying to figure out how to do it all. Mm -hmm. And I appreciate how fleeting time is and the someday aisles and everything else that has gotten me to this point. But no, it, it, it and the money will take care of itself. Mm -hmm. I'm not, I'm not, it's not like, oh, your show's not generating a revenue. Like, 
the show's not there to generate revenue. The show's there to bring information, education. Mm -hmm. If revenue comes, it'll come, but it's not put an ad on there. You know, this show's presented by, you know, Bloomin' <laughs> Businesses Bloomin', you know, and, and get somebody's 50 bucks an episode commercial. Mm -hmm. Like, I can't tell you how fast when I listen to podcasts, I hit that forward button when their commercials kick in. Mm -hmm. Right. Ed Milet's got like three minute commercials running. Click, 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 click. Back to the show. Click, 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 click. Go back to the show. <laughs> like, so if I don't like it, why would I put my audience through it? Yeah, no, for sure. Uh, I definitely love a lot of what you said there. And there was a line that you said earlier, the setback leads to the comeback. I think you could definitely have that on a shirt somewhere, but beautiful that you've been able to see life that way. And I love how you said you could really add air back into people's lives when, you know, they're going through that. And also in the sense that when you went through that struggle and then practically kind of what you were able to do and in regards to kind of the emotional response earlier, I think a lot of it goes to show that life is a lot about impact. And if you feel like you have an impact on people, that's what really gets you to keep going. So beautiful notes on there. Um, honestly, is there anyone who you would love to get dinner with? Um, these days, I don't, I don't know. Um, I had a window of time where I was in the sports car to memorabilia business mm -hmm. and I was a stay at home dad. I was, I was Mr. Mom uh, <laughs> from 91 to 94. And I got to do big sports card memorabilia shows. And I had Tom Seaver, who was my childhood idol baseball player. I had Lawrence Taylor. I had Phil Sims um, and a few others. So I got to like, kind of, and I've always, like in the sports world, they were more my, you know, heroes and idols back then, uh, you know, that I got to meet. So I, I kind of spent a, a lot of time in those three years being at other show, you know, memorabilia shows. And I have hundreds of autographs and stuff like that. So I've kind of did my own dinners, I guess, in, in that regard. Uh, at 60 years of age. Wow. Um, look, it couldn't hurt to ever speak with Warren Buffett. Right. Yep. Um you know, Elon, maybe, uh, Elon Musk, you know, there's a lot of brilliant people out there. And if you could like bring people back from the dead, you know, is it, is it somebody alive or somebody dead? But, um, I don't know. I, I'm, I don't know. That's how, that's how I, you know, you, you have to make sure to ask good questions whenever people have to really think about it. So I think I'm doing my job as a, my, my job as a host here. So happy I was able to kind of make you think a little there, but I tell you, I'd love to see my grandfather again. That's a, that's a beautiful dream to, guest. And yeah, in that, that, that'd be one, you know, that, that was, he was a special person. If, if somebody you could bring back anybody, you know, dead or alive, I, I'd love, I'd love to sit down with my, my grandpa, Sam. Uh, I love that answer, my man. So, and um, yeah. Bruce on some parting notes here, by the way, I think I've finally adjusted in my head <laughs> to, to make Who's sure. Bruce? Who's Bruce? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> when I'm getting to the last two questions, I'm finally have it right. But uh, Bruce, out of everything you've done, you know, you've accomplished a lot. What would you say brings you the most happiness in life? I love helping people. I, I truly give way more than I should mm -hmm. from most people's practical standpoint. Um, especially if it's a referral, mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I, I have the, I was never in the service, the military forces and thank everybody who have done that over the years. A lot of my fraternity brothers served, um, 
but I have a leave no man behind. And I think in, in the realm of what I do in the financial space, I will talk and help anybody to get them on a path, regardless of whether or not there's something in it for me. I've never looked at it if like, well, they can't afford me or, you know, they got to pay me to talk to them. Uh, so I'm a giver. I'm just a giver. And so, you know, I think in, in that regard, it's, um, that's my path. You know, there's a and, and, and it, it fulfills me. Like I enjoy, look, I love kibitzing. I love talking to people. I'll talk to anybody anywhere. If I'm in the right mood, I'm, I'm, I've got, you know, my stand-up comedian is, is in there. Uh, I'm a, I am a character. I love to make people laugh and, and, and carry on. Um, but at the end of the day, I, I'm always smiling. I like to get a smile back from somebody, brighten somebody's day. Uh, my mother raised me right. I, I hold the door open for people. I open the door and close the door for my wife getting in out of the car. Like my mother raised a gentleman. I'm a gentleman and, and, and I'm happy to say, you know, it's my pleasure. Hold that door open, get a smile, you know, joke, put my hand out for a tip, you know, whatever, like make somebody just chuckle and because we're all walking around with a little black cloud over our heads at any given time. And so if I can smile and brighten them up, uh, you know, they smile, Hey, this guy smiled at me. Um, so, you know, that's, that's the 60 year old Bruce. I don't know if the 25 year old Bruce behaved that way, mm -hmm. but the 60 year old Bruce behaves that way. So, you know, there's a, there's a concept in Judaism uh, actually called Maser. So I think it's more related to, to money, but I think the way I interpret it is it's kind of whatever you give, you know, you get 10x back. So, you know, yeah. obviously we have to make ends meet, do that stuff, but we should always remember to try to help someone out because, you know, a lot of times we don't realize how big our blessings are until we see some of the issues other people go through. So definitely beautiful note on there. And Bruce, on a parting note, you know, you've talked about this and alluded to this earlier, but at the end of your life, on your obituary, on your obituary, you know, what do you want to be remembered for? <laughs> I like the, the, what do you want on your tombstone? And I was like, I told you I was sick. That's what I, <laughs> I, was I told you I was sick. Uh, that's an old one. That's an old joke. That's a dad joke, I think. Um, a friend of mine, younger brother, somebody I went to college with about eight, 10 years ago, he said something back to me. He, he said, Bruce Weinstein, everybody's friend. That's how he saw me. Everybody's friend. And it touched me. It was nice. I'm like, yeah. He goes, dude, you're just, you're friends with everybody. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and that stuck with me. So I'm a Leo, Daniel. I'm a leader. I'm definitely not a follower. I'm an outside the box thinker. I am not a conventional. I, I will zig when everybody zags. I'm a contrarian. I just will not. I know. I'll be up in a minute. Um, I just carve my own path. Mm -hmm. And I know so many people are just inside the box thinkers that they'll never step out. They don't challenge the status quo. They're sheep and sheep are led to slaughter and I'm a leader. And, mm -hmm. and so, you know, my clientele have been my flock mm -hmm. and I've been the shepherd and I'm the caretaker. And I take that and empowered with that, that these people need 
and rely on me and I can't let them down. Mm-hmm. And that's my servitude. So, you know, in that sense, that's my walk. Mm-hmm. And I hope that I continue the next time, that final time, that those 60 letters that I got in my 50s are even better and stronger and more voluminous in size that other people, you know, could say, look, you know, even at 67, 82 years of age, this guy was still helping us. Like, I think to the day I die, I'm always going to help put my hand out and, and lift them off the ground or help them cross the street or, and I don't know where it comes from, but it just is. It's just how I, how I am. It's probably because I wasn't given a lot of that as a kid. Mm-hmm. And so it made me want to do it for others because it wasn't done for me. I'm sure that's in there from mm-hmm. a young child, psycho psychological standpoint. Um, but yeah, I told you I was sick. Bruce, Bruce M. Weinstein, you know, uh, a leader, a friend, and he told you he was sick. But uh, I think that would be a great thing to have on a tombstone but and be remembered for. But uh, Bruce, it's been an absolute pleasure. You know, you've done a lot of really cool stuff and I had an amazing time and really appreciate you taking the time to go on the show. Thank you. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Bruce Weinstein. If you enjoyed the episode, rate the show on Spotify, drop a comment on YouTube and subscribe.